Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Phil Donaldson continues our series on Lessons from Life Stories, looking at the life of Rachel. And now, here's Phil. We're continuing in our series from uh, Old Testament characters, and we're looking at a variety of them, and this morning we come to the person Rachel. We learned a lot last Last week, week before last, from Lot and Mark, Brother Mark, that was uh, really instructive and in a, in a methodology for working through, looking at Old Testament characters and uh, who they were, what was their story, why God included them in his word, what were the lessons for living for them then, and what are the lessons from their life and story uh, to us today. Uh, the title of this, uh, this the, the lessons before us today, I'm going to say, is God guides us even through the messy, the story of Rachel. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn to Genesis 29 and put one finger in there. And then Ruth 4 and verse 11. These are short passages later on in the talk. Jeremiah 31 and 15 and Matthew 2 and 16. Messy is a word that I heard a lot when I was growing up. It was an adjective used about the state of the bedroom I shared with two brothers on Legion Drive. Messy was accompanied by words that gave it the definition most of us knew. Clean your room. Make it neat and tidy. That word assumed a physical standard of organization to which our room had to be brought to in order to avoid the repeat command. The word messy came to mind when I was reading the story of Rachel in preparation for today. At first glance, her life looks like a modern use of the word messy. Random, unpredictable, inopportune, unlucky, chaotic, without purpose and meaning. In addition, there are a number of dimensions to messy that come into Rachel's life. And I'll summarize those I'm assuming most of us know a lot about the story. Her story includes the messy dimension of romance in the middle of mixing of family backgrounds, parental influences, none of us have ever seen any of these, and different cultures. In God's upper story, the messy includes the claims of one true God who wants a people to be true to him, even when there is a mixture of idolatry carried alongside the recipients in their lives. The messy takes on additional dimensions when Rachel's hopes were shattered by the deception of a trusted father, enforced polygamy, sibling rivalry, raising family in this kind of situation, theft, and a never-ending search for meaning and purpose. The messiness of life and faith in God and his covenant promises in the middle of worldly power, deception, and sinfulness seems to be the main idea for which her story is included in the biblical record. The messy didn't start with Rachel. The mixture of God's plan and promises and the failures of men and women started way before her appearance in scripture and the upper story of God's work. When we read these life summaries provided, it's important to note 
that we don't get buried in the messiness of the lives, uh, the life stories shared, but rather we look into the situation to see how God was working in those messy lives. All of these characters that we're going through are human, who are in need of significance and purpose, and prone to uh, shortcomings and sin. When you look at the families involved in Scripture, most of them, if not all, were quite dysfunctional. They were messy indeed. As we read and learn, it's important to look for God's call in their lives to be in a personal relationship with him and how he works with them to that end. Let's start briefly with some aspects of God working with Rachel by first looking at what led up to her involvement through the lineage ahead of her. Next slide, slide two. We'll be looking at this slide a couple times. You may not be able to read it too well, but it'll be in the uh, on the Internet afterwards. Uh, but it's a useful just chart to locate us on where I'm uh, where I am in the genealogy of Abraham, the father of the Israel race uh, under God's promise. And that's where we'll uh, start briefly. When Abraham was called, uh, we note that these promises are primary as they were handed down to Rachel. Throughout the characters in Genesis, the story of God's persistence are evident as he does his work in these messy lives. Slide three. Let's just note in Genesis 12, uh, uh, reading about the basic promises and covenant promises that Abraham was given. Abram was his name at that time. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's households, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And not on the slide from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The initiative of God's plan came to Abram as a promise of he and his wife being the head of a great nation under God with a land of their own. We know that we know that part of the story well. Abram and Sarah started well in their faith response to God's God's call as they left where they were and they traveled to where God had called them without really knowing all that was ahead as they followed God. But we also know in their lives the story of their messiness uh, at the same time as they were following God's call. Slide four. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then slide five. The story continues. Genesis 16 and 17. How can a, I won't read all these verses, but we know the story. How can a child come when I'm a hundred years old? How will Sarah be able to bear a child at 90? If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. 
I will establish him and, and give him uh, blessings as well. But my covenant, verse 21, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abram, God went up from them, uh, from there. Uh, next slide. So this is the kind of thing that flowed down from Abram and Sarah down into Rachel's life. A family who had come to the land of promise but left it in a famine situation to find security in a foreign culture for food and led to family tragedy and scars that would last a lifetime. A husband who asked his wife to lie that she was his sister so she might be taken as someone else's wife so that he would not be killed. Sarai was the first of a series of barren matriarchs that the couple found stood in the way of the promise given to them in their calling of the Lord and took action uh, into their own hands. They together conspired to help God along with his promise and started off. What started off as a happy married couple, the recipients of God promised together, devolved into tremendous messes in their own life, which served as part of the legacy for their offspring to follow as they tried to make sense of their calling from God. Slide six. And so we come in the uh, next slide to Isaac and Rebecca. And we won't take time on this, but we, it's this theme is the same. God, God's call and promises were repeated in their life. They were promised blessed offspring, a nation, and a land. But then in their case, they also had a messy, messy life. They had favored sons. They had, a, they had a set of twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob deals his birthright from Esau, the firstborn that was his right. He traded it for a, uh, for a, a bowl of soup. And uh, Jacob uh, skillfully negotiated that blessing to himself. Rebekah and Jacob deceive and lie to steal the blessing, not just the birthright, but the blessing as well. And then we see near the end of their story, Rebekah's protection of Jacob and conspiring with Isaac to get Jacob out of uh, Esau, wanting to kill him, and by a, a, through this scheme to get him a wife from afar, not from among uh, their own people. So the messiness continues, but at the same time, God's purpose, God's co- calling, God's covenant, God's promises continue uh, to uh, go to them. Why didn't God just abandon them? Is beyond our comprehension, really. Uh, they just kept... Uh, living a life that was uh, against the designs that he had for marriage and all kinds of things in terms of relationships and character just were falling by the wayside. But nevertheless, God continued in his grace and mercy uh, to them all. Next slide. And we now come to Jacob, and we could easily get lost talking about Jacob because he was uh, uh, Rachel and Leah's husband, as we know the story. Uh, again, God's, uh, God's call and promises continue. Next slide, please. In Genesis 28 and 11, and we see Jacob's dream of the ladder to heaven. Uh, David, you may want to look at that uh, later uh, just to help you along interpreting, uh, interpreting dreams and angels. All of these come up in these stories. They're fantastic. And yet, it did have a meaning to Jacob. He, he saw this ladder to heaven and wanted to take that that path there, and he said, surely the Lord was in my dream, and he put up an altar of worship to God. But then there's the messy. Genesis 28 and 20. 
God calls him, promises him all these things. And yet, what does Jacob do? He tries to make a deal with God. Now, this hits home to all of us. I'm jumping to an application for us. If God will do this for me, then I will do that. Listen to his, look how many conditions there are to his so-called vow. It wasn't so much a vow as a conditional promise. Notice, if God will be with me, and if God will watch over me on this journey, and if he will give me food, and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Then uh, this stone I set up will set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all of it you give me, I will give you a tenth. Interesting how God would hear this this kind of acceptance of his promise. But how prone people are to say, hmm, Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do that. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for people who know him for who he is and want to rest and rely on him for sure for the things he brings, but not conditional on, on specifics that he wants us to conform to and so on. God just wants our, our life, our relationship with him. So we come to the uh, to Rachel now. That's a long introduction, isn't it? Uh, on the chart, we can see uh, Rachel located with the big red arrow. And if I didn't throw my thing out, which it fell down, I think. the uh, You can see that uh, Rebecca and Laban were uh, brother and sister, and Jacob found Rachel. And... Uh, we, we see again uh, uh, the hand of God in creating this nation through these people in spite of their human messiness. And when we come to Rachel, we see God's plan continuing to work out through his providence. He not only makes this plan, but he provides in specific ways to people in their life. And that's what we are recipients of and we have to seek to interpret and understand how he works. Not only what he promises, but how he fulfills these promises. Next slide. So this starts off a very happy story. Even after all the conspiring, uh, God works with with Jacob. And uh, Rebecca's brother Laban comes, uh, right? Rebecca's brother Laban comes on the scene. And then the daughter of Laban comes to the well. And we see this fantastic romance story uh, that came from God and how it begins well. And we see Jacob with his male strength trying to impress his uh, impress the other shepherds around and moves the stone by himself and all of this story. They make an early connection, the two of them. And uh, Jacob gives him a kiss on the first uh, first occasion. I assume that was a familial kiss of some kind, but who knows. Uh, and then Jacob does the right thing. He conveys God's promise and his role to Laban. And Laban makes a deal with him, remember, about working seven years, after which he would get to marry his beloved. And, uh, oh, we skipped already. Uh, so anyway, he said those things and, and to them so that Laban understood where he was coming from. And Laban, who for him was a repetition of this scene of being at the well and discovering God's plan at the well, he, uh, he, he uh, goes along with what, what happens next. So God's patience prevails, except the messiness rolls in once again. It's just such a, a repetitive story of, of these families that just 
start well, but they don't finish well. And I think we had that in Lot's life, heard the other day in that story. Started well, but ended disastrously. In this case, we'll see how it ends. But Laban turned, and we're looking at these things from Rachel's point of view. Her own father turned from being a trusted father uh, to a powerful betrayer. Can you imagine a father that you had who turned to you in this way and dealt with you in this way? Tremendous scars of, uh, in people's lives, for sure. Leah was replaced on the wedding night, and we know this story. And we noted, I noted as I was going through that his, his servant, that's Laban's servant Zilpah, was the cohort in the deception. Somehow it, it was a story that was told there, and we see Zilpah, his servant, became the mediator to make sure it happened according to Laban's plan, and we see more of her later. I look at Jacob's decision point here when he takes Leah as his wife. Yes, he was forced into this deal, and that's as far as we think about it. But Jacob is fundamentally weak, and he goes along with this polygamous relationship that the father is casting them into, and he just accepts it. And so he ends up with two wives, uh, the two sisters. And that was a decision that uh, carried on for many years and was a huge problem in their lives. So Jacob's decision point, he takes Leah's wife and has an agreement to serve seven more years before he gets Rachel. So we see Laban's power to enforce polygamy on his daughters and weak Jacob. Laban had a man with many, many occasions to hear about God's call and his covenant and his promises. But he persists in this messiness. And we see later in the story, combined with divination, with idolatry, and trying to mix and stir that with, uh, with the call of God. And we'll come back to that in a few moments as to its impact on Rachel. Next slide. So when we read the story of Rachel, we see these dimensions of messiness, the competition between the two sisters, the jealousy of childbearing, trying to win a greater share of Jacob's attention, and attributing God for winning their competitions. Now, when you read these stories in the Old Testament, this is just an aside, but we have to be careful to interpret them carefully that all that was attributed to God doing wasn't necessarily the case. Now, this is my own interpretation here. But these ladies were looking to God as the magic person who fulfilled their next child. And when you think about that, it's their view, and it's recorded in Scripture, but it doesn't mean that God is condoning these things. Maybe, but uh, God took the result of their messiness and made something positive of it. But these were their doings and their, their activities. Uh, so she did, Rachel attributed God for winning their competitions as Leah did as well. Next slide. God's patience continues to prevail through all of this messiness. And uh, we, th- we are given some insights into Rachel's struggles through her own words. And at first blush, and a lot of students of this, these stories stop at the first uh, uh, six, six uh, steps of what revelations we have about her character. They all involve her requesting that something be given to her. As you go through the story, you, say, you, you see them, and I'll just skip through them. To Jacob, give me children or I will die. And Jacob answers, 
who am I, God? I can't fulfill this. It's up to God to do what he wants to do with our family. So again, learning from her ancestors, Rachel takes, uh, told Jacob, take Bilhah, my servant, for children and have children by them and they'll be my children, not Leah's children. And on and on it goes. To God, he says, give me children and God vindicated me in, in having these children of Bilhah. Uh, then in, uh, in number four, to Leah, give me your mandrakes. And I had to look up, of course, what mandrakes were, but they were uh, seen as an aphrodisiac or something that assisted in lovemaking and even childbearing and healthiness of children and all kinds of things. But uh, she negotiated with, with uh, her sister, uh, who was brought these mandrakes by Leah's son, I think it was, and she said, give them to me, and in exchange I will give you a night with my husband uh, uh, in return for that. And then she gets a, has a son. I don't know if they can attribute that to the exchange, but in any case, to God who has taken away my disgrace, she says. And then when Joseph came along, what did she say to God? Give me another son and to Joseph. So these are all a whole series of give me. And we can understand that in the cultural setting and uh, was she sinning by these requests? Uh, leave you to decide and God to decide. But that was the nature of her character during this period. The good news is that she was looking to God in some way. God had something to work with. And that's what I suggest the rest of the story uh, is about. In, in, in between what I want to say in a few moments, there's this interlude where Jacob asks Laban to allow him to return back to his own country. Uh, after the wages of part of Laban's flocks. That's an interesting story for geneticists to figure out how Jacob ended up with the better share of the, of the sheep and goats and how, how this all worked with colored branches and so on. Uh, but it's not really a big part of this story. But uh, the Lord tells him to return to the land of his family. And interestingly, Jacob now calls Leah and Rachel together to, to the field, away from Laban, so he could talk to them about it. And, God, and he explains to them God's call for them to leave. Now that story at that point doesn't exactly align with the, the story that's recorded earlier, but it's his either embellishment or, his view, or what really happened in the way he talked uh, to his two wives about this decision. He was... A, basically telling him that God has called us to leave. So next uh, slide. I, I want just to highlight, we do, you probably can't read all this, and I just highlighted in red the upper story that's going on in terms of what God was saying and what the two ladies heard. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to your land. Jacob brought Rachel and Leah there together. And they heard this message the same. Your father's attitude is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. So he's, he's identifying that he, his relationship with God is strengthening and becoming greater. And he's trying to impress that on, on Leah and Rachel. And then he goes through this story on the uh, livestock and breeding. 11, David, oh, please note, the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed uh, a pillar to me and you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. This is the persistent, uh, ongoing uh, work of God 
in the middle of the messiness of, of men and women. He is persistent, he is patient, and his promises and his work uh, continues in their lives. So then Rachel and Leah replied, and, and I, I don't want to read too much into this, but that's interesting that they reply, replied together. The sisters probably are at war for the last 15 or 20 years. Now they're, they've come together under this call of God to, irrespective of what has happened, to move forward with God's call to Jacob to return to Canaan. And they give their logic. Do we still not have any share in the inheritance of their father's estate? He regards us as foreigners. He sold us. He's used up what he has paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to our children. So do whatever God has told you. This is, I see this as a return by Rachel to her commitment to God truly. And that she and her sister are beginning to understand this God is real. Our father, our culture, all that we've had in this previous life has to be left behind so that we can follow God. Dave Hook in communion was talking about, I'm bringing a lot of attention to my good brother, but he, he talked about how the arms of faith, uh, we reach up to God. This is a bit of a story here of, of a little different view of the same thing. It's as if we're, on the, we, we're sometimes on the edge of a cliff and we hear the call of Christ from below a le- on the ledge of a cliff and he calls us to himself. But what does that call involve in that case? It's not so much us reaching up our arms to him above. It means we have to let go of the things and fall into his arms. And that's kind of the picture that we have of Leah and Rachel. They have to set aside all of this that they uh, uh, were a part of so that they could now belong uh, to God. Help me, where are we? Thank you. God's patience prevails again and the, the struggles of the two girls. Verse 8, notice this. So they, Rachel agrees to go with Leah, but what does she do? She goes into her dad's tent or whatever it was and she steals the family gods. So here we come to this messiness of people who are to be in the lineage of God's calling to become a nation and people for him. And they still hang on to the, the gods of their idols. That call was the same to them, and we're going to see the conclusion of this story. But it's the call for us as well. When we commit and vow to follow God, we are not to drag along the negative things and the, the evil and the idolatry and anything else from our past that would prevent us from being his and his alone. I just, for the sake of time, we just have to uh, end this story in a moment. But uh, then uh, the story continues with Rachel's final struggle. Uh, she calls the, the next son the son of my pain, Benoni. And Jacob changes the name to son of the right hand or south. And these have meanings uh, for, in different ways. For her, this was a son of her struggle. Her difficulties, her suffering, her her pain in life that she'd been enduring for these times since uh, uh, since not reaching and having a monogamous relationship with with uh, Jacob. 
She had all of those struggles and difficulties through her life. And yet God gave her another son. And then she, in, uh, in childbirth, she passes away. So let's just uh, follow to the uh, Rachel's Enduring Testament in the next slide. So she died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day, being the day of the writing of that book. But there still is a Rachel's grave in Israel. Peg and I visited it, and it's nothing, I'm sure, like it was when Jacob did it. This is probably more what Jacob left behind was a pillar of stones on a cavern or a, a digging where the body was placed. Next slide. The elders in uh, Bethlehem, this is flipping over to Ruth now to pick up the other parts of the story of her legacy. Ruth 4.11 Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, that's Boaz and Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. The burial site was going to stand just outside of uh, Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be family like that of, and so on. Uh, So this legacy of her life became an enduring testimony to although she suffered, although she had been in these very difficult situations, God won her over, that's my interpretation, uh, to himself uh, before she passed away. And this whole story of her, of her suffering became one that uh, continued into Jeremiah, uh, where a, a voice is heard in Ramah, re- mourning and, grating, and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. Sort of a story of her life, the suffering she went through, and yet God... Uh, declared to uh, to the people of Israel at that time, Matthew 2 and 16, the fulfillment of that prophecy, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be uh, comforted because they are no more. But the second part of that is like the verse 16 and 17, that was fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. And that's where we have to end our end our time recognizing that Christ's coming initiated the new world in which promises and his covenants flow to us. The Lord came in the the middle of this suffering of the human race where someone like Herod kills all the boys trying to get Jesus. But God was in control. And, And we have in this story the story of the coming of the Messiah, the promised one of Israel and the promise to the whole world for the same kinds of things. They're, what were they, the three that were promised to in the Old Testament? A people, a nation, and, and a blessing. And in Christ, we have the same things as an offer to all mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him will have eternal life. He calls us to a relationship. He calls us to be adopted into his own family. And he wants us to be his, not only as individuals, but he wants us to be together as a nation, the church of God, church of Christ, and be his as a Christian community. And in that community, we have the blessings of the hope of of the salvation he has offered. We have the blessings of the hope that lies in eternal life, uh, living with him now and living with him for eternity and be his forever.
along with everyone else who trusts and believes him. Like Rachel, the end of that story about the the gods of his father, they, they are a testimony as well to Rachel because later on, Jacob tells everyone in his family, whatever gods you've brought from the other land, bring them out to me and we're going to bury them forever. So this is what happened to Rachel. She brought those things that she was holding on to from her past and brought them to, to Jacob, brought them to God. And she worshipped him with God as a result of being purified, letting go of the past and turning to him for a salvation, for his salvation, for his promises, for his working in her life. And so should we. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, our Father, we just humble ourselves before you. We thank you for these stories of the Bible that you have included in your word for us to read, to understand, and to learn the lessons that are contained in there from you. Father, we pray that as we consider our lives, we, we all recognize that we individually have come from our own messiness, And we also are aware through these stories and watching around with others how messy the life that we live in now can be without you. But we thank you for the promises that are found in a personal relationship with you, that you have called us to be yours. And we turn to you in humble thanksgiving and gratitude for calling us to you, for this free salvation from our past that is found in Christ. And just help us with with a, our commitment to you and our vows that they would be unconditional, that they would be genuine and sincere in accepting you uh, for us to live for you in the way in which you call us. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the spirit of God who seeks to infuse the teachings of yourself, the message that you have brought into our lives this morning, into our hearts and into our minds in an enduring way so that we might serve you more better, more wholeheartedly, and more capably as you seek to bring glory to yourself through your work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.